I'm going to be reading the sermon text for today, which is found in the book of Exodus, um, chapter 8, verses 20 through chapter 9, um, verse 12. So once again, Exodus 8, 20 through 9, 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water. And say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called to Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked, and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also, and did not let the people go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of, e of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and become boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh. 
And Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them, as the Lord had spoken to Moses. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Hope you keep your Bibles open to uh, that portion of Scripture. It's a long portion of Scripture. We've been taking some bigger bites these last few weeks. And um, because of that, we're in danger of, uh, I'm in danger of running out of time. Um, I'm always in danger of running out of time. But it seems like, especially when we take out a big chunk like this, uh, it's tough to get through it all. And so I'm going to just dispense with any kind of elaborate introduction. And I want to get right in to these next three plagues. I've got three more plagues for you today. And we've been dealing with these in a series of uh, three. We're in the second of, of that series today. We'll look at plagues uh, four, five, and six. And as we uh, work through all of these plagues, we're, we're going to have the same kind of goal in mind. We are taking our cue from God himself that has explained right from the get-go what the point of all of this is. Uh, we used last week uh, chapter 7 verse 5 as a sort of key, interpretive key, that um, where God says, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. So the point is that all of these plagues are a demonstration of who God is. They are his self-revelation as he acts in judgment. And then um, just to assure you that we're on the right track, uh, we have a similar kind of statement that's made in our passage today in chapter 8, verse 22, uh, where the Lord says, But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that, there's your purpose statement, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. So we're working our way through all of these plagues, trying to learn more about this God, this God with whom we have to deal. And uh, he's gracious to reveal a lot of different aspects of his nature and his character, the way that he interacts with uh, human beings, and as a result, we discover how we ought to interact with him. And so we looked at uh, three or four of those types of things last week. We're going to look at three more aspects of who this God is from these next three plagues. And the first thing that we discover is that this is a God demanding. This is a God who makes demands. And the f this fourth plague begins in a very predictable way, or at least in a way that's becoming predictable to us now. As we saw last week, these, uh, these plagues break out very nicely into groups of three. And the first in each series of plagues, so we're talking about plague number one and number four and number seven, the first in these series has Moses rising up early in the morning to present himself to Pharaoh as Pharaoh goes down to the water to worship. That's a standard feature of all uh, the first of, of the set. 
But then even more predictable, the, the even more predictable prelude to the plague, if we could say that, is the command that Moses gives to Pharaoh on behalf of the Lord. And you know it well by now. Moses comes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go that they may serve me. It's not a new command by this point. Certainly not a new command that uh, has been given unto Pharaoh. He's heard it now multiple times. And it's the same demand that God has made on day one. That's all the way back in chapter 5, verse 1. And nothing has changed. Each time it comes, we're reminded again that nothing has changed. God's repeated command throughout these pages, throughout these passages, is really functioning as a steady drumbeat that sounds throughout these chapters. And there's at least two conclusions that that leads us to. When we hear that drumbeat, we can be certain about at least two things. And the first is that God's demands don't disappear. They don't dissipate with our disobedience. His requirements remain. You know, he, God, our God is not like these weary, discouraged mothers that you encounter at Walmart, you know, who are in an effort to deal with their, their disobedient and their disrespectful kid. Not only do these women forget, and men, forget the demands that they made upon the kid, but they end up giving in to the kid's demand. It's, it's really quite a spectacle to see. And you, and you might pity the parent in that situation, but you don't respect that kind of parenting, I'm sure. Because you know that it's totally backwards to how things ought to be. Parents command, children obey. That's how it's supposed to go. In the same way, a holy and a righteous God has every right to make demands on his creatures. That's just... That's just the nature of things. That's how it works. And his creatures have a duty to obey. The second conclusion that this constant drumbeat of God's demands leads us to is that the Lord is incredibly gracious. Consider that. I think that's a fair conclusion to come to when we see the Lord coming back to Pharaoh with the same command time after time after time. When God says one more time to Pharaoh, let my people go, each time it's a fresh opportunity for the Lord, for Pharaoh to comply. It's a fresh opportunity for Pharaoh to repent and to obey. And friends, um, that's, there's no other way of looking at that than just pure grace. That's a mercy. Just like every morning that rebel sinners wake up is, is a, a brand new opportunity to acknowledge the Lord. Every, every, t every morning that rebel sinners wake up and find breath in their lungs, that's, that's a new morning mercy for them to, to finally today obey the, the voice of the Lord and the commands of the Lord. Namely, the command that God has given to sinners to repent and to believe upon Christ. It's grace that God's demands would come upon us. 
but it would be a huge mistake to presume upon God's grace. These plagues not only teach us that, that God is demanding, but that his commandments carry consequences. Did you notice here in the text that there is an or else attached to these divine demands? You can see this from the beginning of verse 21. Let my people go or else. Or else if you don't let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you. It's, a, it's actually a great little play on words that gets somewhat lost in translation, depending on the translation that you have in English. The, the verb let go in the command to Pharaoh is actually the verb send. So Pharaoh is to send away God's people Israel. And if he doesn't, then God is going to send something, namely a swarm of flies. Send, Pharaoh, or else I'll send. Then we see something very similar in the next plague. The next command comes to Pharaoh, and it comes again with a consequence. You see this in chapter 9, verse 2. He says, if you refuse to let them go and still hold them. So, so picture this. This is Pharaoh holding back Israel with his hand. The Lord says, if you keep holding them back with, their, with your hand, behold, my hand is going to fall upon you with a severe plague. And it's coming on your livestock. In, in other words, Pharaoh needs to send Israel on their way or else the Lord is going to go full send on Pharaoh, as the kids say. If Pharaoh doesn't unhand Israel, then a heavy hand is going to fall upon Egypt. These, I think, are, are very striking and, and memorable ways to make the point that the punishment is going to fit the crime. Not only is God right to make demands, you understand, but he is justified in severely punishing our disobedience to his demands. So enter now a swarm of flies. That sounds bad, I'm sure, but it's even worse than you probably think. I, I don't want you to get the wrong idea because these aren't house flies we're talking about. Okay? As incredibly annoying as a swarm of those are, we once had a, a very beautiful magnolia tree in our backyard, and it developed scale, and uh, I don't know, it went really weird on us, and it, it was exuding this sort of sweet substance that was very attractive to flies. And so it got to the point where we couldn't even sit on our back deck anymore. We were invaded by swarms of flies around this magnolia tree. Terrible. I don't recommend that at all. Uh, it's unbearable. But actually, that's nothing compared to what we're dealing with here. That's not, that's not the type of fly that we're talking about. Psalm uh, 78, verse 45, reflects back on the plagues, and it reflects back on this one in particular when it says, he sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them. So don't think house flies. Think more like black flies. 
think about the kind of fly that you encounter when you're, you know, camping or when you're up north fishing or whatever. The kind that about which you say, they're eating me alive and you're not being figurative. This is, this is what descended in swarms upon the whole land of Egypt. All of the Egyptians, let me put it that way. I'll come back to that in a minute. Well, this one is similar into the as the frog plague that we looked at last time in that it greatly affects Pharaoh. Pharaoh's very affected by things that, that affect him personally. He's not so, so bothered by the things that affect his people, but when it bugs him, it, uh, it, really, it really gets to him. It brings him low. It reduces him to the point where he brings Pharaoh and Moses back into his presence, and once again, he asks them to plead to the Lord on his behalf for, the, for relief, for the removal of these flies. Plead for me, Pharaoh says. But that's not the first thing that he says. Look at this. He says first in... in Verse 25, go sacrifice to your God within the land. Now, on first glance, this might look like Pharaoh is caving, but actually Pharaoh is controlling. He, he's, he's acting like the Lord's demands upon him are negotiable and that he still has some sort of control over the deal. God says, let my people go that they may sacrifice to me. And Pharaoh says, they can sacrifice, but they can't go. How does Moses respond to this half measure, which is actually no measure? And I'll, I'll just have to tell you that some people are not real thrilled with Moses at this point. They, th they think that he could probably have given a much more robust, sound, kind of defiant response to Pharaoh. In, to some, what Moses answers here is, is, sounds like a bit like a compromise because he doesn't boldly proclaim this point that I'm making that God's demands are non-negotiable. That would have been something that he could have said in Pharaoh's face. Instead, he appeals to Pharaoh on the basis that his plan would cause or civil unrest because of how distasteful it, it is in the eyes of the Egyptians, that the Israelites would be sacrificing animals in service and in worship to their, to their God. And so um, Moses, they think, people think, is, is really kind of weak on this point. He's appealing to Pharaoh and to his own kinds of sensibilities. I happen to think that it's a fine response because Moses is basically saying, and yes, I'll, uh, he says it in a polite kind of deferential way, but Moses is essentially saying that Pharaoh's plan is ridiculous on the face of it. Pharaoh wants to be in control. He, he thinks he's calling all of the shots. He wants to compromise God's commands, but his own plan would lead to total disaster. He, he doesn't have the wisdom enough to think through even the most basic things about his own plan. And we shouldn't miss the fact that Moses' response also does include a very strong statement on the absolute necessity 
of obedience to God's demands. Look at verse 27. Moses says, we must go. That's the language of duty, uncompromising duty. We must go three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord as he tells us. Our God is demanding and we have a duty to obey. We must not compromise, Pharaoh. You must not compromise. But Pharaoh still wants to run the show. He, he says, fine, but don't go very far. And then he says, plead for me. And Moses does plead for him, you'll notice. And what's even more astounding is that at the appointed time, God graciously removes all of the flies, the swarms of flies from the, from the Egyptians. And he removes them completely. This is different from uh, the frog solution when God uh, ended that plague. Uh, there was still lots of frog, piles of frogs everywhere. Uh, it seems like this is different. When God removes the, the swarms of flies, they're gone. They're out of there. Not a fly remains. This is mercy towards Pharaoh. Pharaoh that's demonstrating himself once again to be disobedient in the face of a demanding God. Despite this grace, Pharaoh demonstrates once more to be a hard-hearted cheat. And, and Moses knows who he's dealing with, and so he, he even tries to prevent this from taking place a second time. He says, don't cheat again like you did last time. He knows Pharaoh. And sure enough, what happens is that as soon as there's respite from the flies, as soon as he gets a, some relief, as soon as the buzzing stops, Pharaoh changes his mind. He doesn't change his mind. His mind wasn't even there in the first place. He does not let the people go. Which is to say that he's continuing to refuse to obey the Lord's command. But the command remains. Pharaoh can avoid this divine demand as much as he wants, as much as he thinks. And he can avoid it much to his great pain, but the demand is not going away, you'll notice. And neither is it up for negotiation. Our God, I'm telling you folks, is a demanding God. And so I would ask you today, what is the Lord demanding of you today? I don't know where you're at in terms of your walk with him, your spiritual journey, if we could put it in those terms. But wherever you're at, there are divine demands that are at your doorstep today. And for some of you, it's this. Repent of your sins and believe on Christ. I don't, I don't know how you're hearing that. When you, hear, when you hear someone say, when you hear the word of God say, you must be born again. Does that come to you? Does that kind of hit you as a suggestion, you know, an invitation from someone that thinks that it's probably a good idea? That's not how these should hit you, friends. These are demands that are made upon you. 
These are commands that you must obey. Your duty in the face of such demands doesn't dissipate with your disobedience. With your, maybe up to this point, you've refused to obey that command to repent and believe. I'm telling you that that doesn't push the command out of the way. The command continues. It remains. You must obey. Judgment awaits. There, you understand that there is a severe or else that is attached to that divine demand. Christian, what is the Lord demanding of you today? What sin, by the power of the Holy Spirit, must you put off today? What holy virtue, again, by that same power, are you today in need of putting on? The Bible says, if you know, I don't know what it is for you, but chances are you do. The Bible says that if you know the good that you ought to do and you don't do it, that's sin. That's a divine demand that you are denying, that you're disobeying. Whatever it is that the Lord is demanding that you do, his commands, I, it, it's not right, it's not good, it's not advisable that you would downplay your duty. Don't compromise. It's not up for negotiation. We have, friends, a demanding God. But here's, here's the wonderful thing. The Lord Jesus comes to us saying that not, not to take away from our duties and our obligations, but the Lord says that his, his burdens are, are light. They're actually, his demands are not burdensome. They're for our eternal good, and they're for our present joy. So understand this about our God. He is a God demanding. In the second place, he is a God discriminating discriminating. I realize full well, trust me, that these first two characteristics of God come, that come through in these plagues sound to us like negative characteristics. That sounds like a, a terrible thing to say about anyone, uh, let alone God. You know, when I was going through seminary, there was a, a popular website at the time called uh, ratemyprofessor.com. And uh, that was a go-to website because you could search by institution and then it would break down all the different professors at that institution. You could look them up and you could see various ratings that previous students had given them. And the point was, the, the point was to avoid any professors that were difficult uh, and, you know, kind of go to the ones that that had ratings that said, this guy is real easy. This is a bird course. Anyway, tr you know, trust me, if you read that a certain professor was demanding and discriminating, you would avoid that professor, well, like the plague. But actually, our problem isn't a professor or a god who makes demands. The problem really only comes if those demands are unreasonable 
And as we've seen, it's completely reasonable for a holy and a righteous God to a sovereign God, a creator God, to make demands on his creatures. There, there's nothing more appropriate that in, in all of creation. Likewise, it sounds, it sounds terrible to engage in discrimination, but, but we do it all the time. And the term itself is neutral. It doesn't have the, we attach the negative connotations to it, but the verb dis to discriminate simply means to distinguish by discerning or exposing differences between things. It's to recognize or identify something as separate or distinct. That's a perfectly fine thing to do. In fact, it's, it's a great thing to do when you're shopping for avocados or whatever, all the way down the line. You want to be discriminating. One of the things that comes out, especially in this second group of three plagues, is the fact that God makes a very clear distinction between the people of Egypt and the people of Israel, which is to say that he discriminates. And, and perhaps this was true of the first three plagues, but it, it just wasn't mentioned. But in our passage today, uh, it's clearly mentioned. The, these things are stated explicitly, and I think it meant to grab our attention. And, and even though it may not be stated as clearly going forward, I think uh, it's going to, this distinction that's made, this discrimination is going to continue all the way to the end. And it's going to be expressly seen in the 10th command when a clear distinction is going to be made between those who are covered by the blood of the lamb and those who are not. But we have it today in our text for the first time. Notice it as it appears. You see it first in chapter 8, verse 22, as it relates to the flies. The Lord says through Moses, but on that day I will set apart. Notice that language. Set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. You remember that Goshen is that portion of Egypt, a very uh, productive, beautiful, profitable sort of fertile land that a previous pharaoh had given Joseph and his extended family, the people of Israel, to dwell in. Uh, and they got the choice, choice land, and that continued down to this present day here. That's where the, the folks were living, largely in the area of Goshen. And and God is saying to Pharaoh that this is going to be, how should we put this, a no-fly zone, okay? So as verse 23 says, a clear division is made between God's people and Pharaoh's people. This is what re theologians refer to as the antithesis. A sharp distinction the Lord makes between his people and the rest of mankind. We see the same antithesis in the fifth plague. That which befell the, the livestock, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, the flocks. Look at verse 4 of chapter 9. 
It says, but the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And he set a time to do this. And he did it. And we read the result in verse 6. It says, all the livestock of the Egyptians died, but none of the livestock of the people of Israel died. Pharaoh had to verify this for himself. It was almost unbelievable. He, he, he had to see it for himself. So he sent investigators to Goshen, and they came back and reported that, yes, it's true, none of the livestock of Israel was dead. And this did nothing to soften the heart of Pharaoh. Um, it's, it's a sad story that's uh, developing for Pharaoh. But likewise, in the sixth plague, the, the plague of boils, even though we're not given all of the details here, and, and mainly that's because um, the last plague in each series of three is rattled off kind of in rapid fire. We don't read of any warning that's given. They just come upon uh, the people, and they come in quick succession. And I believe that we're meant to understand that the Lord discriminated with this plague as well. Because notice the end of verse 11. It said the boils had come upon all the Egyptians. And the clear implication, at least to me, is that they had not come upon the Israelites. And that's because the Israelites were distinct. God had discriminated. God had set apart. That was the word that we encountered. He'd marked out his people in order to exempt them from this plague, from this judgment. What a wonderful thought. I hope this is starting to dawn on you. What a wonderful thought to know that the Lord has a people and that he sets this people apart and that he shelters this people from his judgment and from his wrath. You might be wondering, well, what, what then was it about the Israelites that the Lord was basing his discrimination on? And that's typically where people get in trouble when it comes to discrimination is that they this is why discrimination has a bad reputation. It's because people are basing their discrimination on terrible bases. Usually we favor one group over another because of attributes that we find to be favorable, but which are just kind of arbitrary and biased and all the rest. Not so with the Lord. So we, we but, but in case you're wondering, well, what is it about the Israelites that that made it so that the Lord would discriminate in their favor. Listen to this. This is what the Lord explains to his people a little bit later in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 to 8. He says this, You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that God chose you, that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, 
that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the, ha- from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. What is, do, do you see that, what, how the Lord himself is arguing? The basis for God's discrimination has nothing to do with the people themselves. It has everything to do with his grace and his grace alone. That God has a people for his own possession has nothing to do with that people. And it has everything to do with God's sovereign choice together with his steadfast love and his great faithfulness. I'm I'm here to tell you that if you are in Christ today, then you are in the company of the chosen people of God. The, The same language that the Lord uses to describe the Israelites of old is how the Lord refers to you. He, he calls you set apart, just like he called that them that in verse 22. He calls you mine. He, he calls you treasured. L- listen afresh to, to uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you, once you had not received mercy, but you have now received mercy. This, this, is, this is what the Lord says about you. And I think we're in a much better position to understand the Exodus language of that passage in in 1 Peter. It's now applied to us. Our God has chosen us. He has possessed us. He has protected us from wrath and from judgment. Our God has saved us and shown us great mercy. He's redeemed us by the precious blood of his own son. And just like the Israelites need to be freed so that they can worship, we too have been redeemed for a purpose. Peter says we've been redeemed to proclaim the excellencies of the Lord. Now, you know me pretty well by now, so you likely know that I have a soundtrack running through my head most, most of the time. And that often in my sermons, I'll quote a, a song or a hymn that's been kind of playing in my mind as I've meditated on these truths from scripture. Well, this week, it's lyrics to an upcoming song of the month. It's a song that the youth sang for us at our Good Friday service last month. And the song title comes in the form of a question. Here's the question. Now, why this fear and unbelief? And so the, the lyrics are going to serve as a remedy for anxiety and for fear, which we constantly have, let's just admit. And, and, and fear is something that scripture has explained to us has to do with judgment. That, that's why, at heart, that's why we fear, because we fear judgment. So if you're struggling with, with fear and unbelief this morning, Hear these words that are adapted from 
uh, the original writer, Augustus Toplady, and he's speaking of our Savior when he says, complete atonement you have made, and by your death have fully paid the debt your people owed. No wrath remains for us to face. We're sheltered by your saving grace and sprinkled by your blood. Jesus, all my trust is in your blood. Jesus, you've rescued us through your great love. This is, this is a song that you can, these are the type of truths that you can preach to your anxious and fearful soul every day of the week. That there is no wrath left for you to face. You're sheltered. You're, you're, you're saved by the blood of Christ. Brothers and sisters, aren't you glad that we have a discriminating God? If you are his and he is yours, then there's no wrath for you to face. Our, our Savior, you understand, bore it all. You don't have to live in fear because you are exempt from the plague of God's judgment. You, you, can, you can live rather in the complete freedom of the people of God. The point is that if you're in Christ, you are freed now. Freed for a particular purpose. You're freed to worship him. And you're freed up to proclaim his excellencies. Let's look at a third and final aspect of God's nature. He's a God defeating. He's a defeating God. By now I'm sure you can tell that I'm just kind of picking and choosing what to bring forth from these plagues. There's, as I said, too many details to get into, and I certainly don't want to waste valuable time going back over ground that we've already covered. For example, we saw last week how by these plagues, the Lord is demonstrating the impotence of idols. As Exodus chapter 12, verse 12 will explain, these are all judgments on all of the gods of Egypt. So, so we could easily talk, if we had the time, about how the plague on the livestock is actually a total takedown of a whole plethora of Egyptian gods that are depicted as bulls and cows. From the historical record, it appears that this, the, the, the pharaoh, the particular pharaoh that Moses was dealing with, this guy was probably the most egregious of all the pharaohs in terms of his bull worship. And I want you to think of the profound theological statement that was made the night that the Lord went into the fields of Egypt cow tipping. We could talk about that. Furthermore, we could talk, uh, th you know, these are people that put a lot of trust in gods of healing, small g gods, who were thought to bring forth all kinds of remedies for, especially for various skin diseases that were rampant at that time and in that place. But these gods are shown to be completely powerless when there is an outbreak of boils, you understand. My, uh, my family doesn't have the most extraordinary family tree, that's to say the least. 
In fact, the only celebrity in our big, huge, extended family is my dad's cousin. His name is John Boyle, spelled B-O-Y-L-E. And he's a famous Canadian artist. Well, he's as famous as a Canadian artist could, could ever be. I always thought that my grandma's sister missed a golden opportunity when she married into the Boyle family and had a son. I always thought she should have called him Lance. I can't, I can't really remember why I told you that. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's to underscore the point, simply to underscore the point that this sixth plague that the Lord brings on Pharaoh and his people is particularly nasty. Thankfully, we don't need, have all of the specifics, but you have to believe it was itching and oozing, that it was painful, that it was pussy, you think it's bad just hearing that kind of stuff. Imagine living through this plague. And again, we could talk about how that's a total takedown of the Egyptian gods of healing. But let's just focus on the magicians, okay? If we can kind of narrow our focus just down to the uh, magicians, verse 11, where are they? Where are the magicians? Looks like... Every last one of them is called in sick. Pharaoh's summoned them to, to try to duplicate the feat. He's, 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 brought, he, he's calling them to come forward to kind of defeat the power of God. But the magicians themselves are so plagued with boils that they can't even come to work. Now, all of these observations that we've made about God today... Um, can be summarized with couplets. So if you want some, a, an easy way to kind of take these home with you, think about this. And these couplets come from the passages themselves. As far as the, the fact that we have a, a God who's demanding, the key is this couplet from chapter 8, verse 20 to 21. You send or I'll send. You remember that? Likewise, the key to understanding God's discrimination is this couplet from verse 23. My people and your people. And the key for understanding God as defeating, God as the defeater, is found in chapter 9, verses 10 to 11, in this couplet. Stood, can't stand. Stood, can't stand. See if you can put your eyes on on that in these verses 10 and 11 Moses and Aaron stood before Pharaoh but the magicians couldn't stand before Moses this is the magicians totally defeated they've been we've we've watched them just taper off right from the get-go we've watched them at least appear to be putting a strong showing in the first couple of plagues but even there, they were just making matters worse. It was like they were scoring on their own net. But with this plague of boils, you understand they are down and out. They're, they're out for the count. They, they've tapped out, and they are never to be heard from again. And make no mistake, this is a formidable enemy. 
we, we understood that when they first arrived on the scene and, and the author was like multiplying words and descriptions. They're magicians, they're sorcerers, they're practitioners of secret arts. It's all of these people, all of these professional people. These are no slouches. So much so that two of the more prominent and maybe, maybe the, the head guys, their names have been handed down throughout tradition. You've heard of Janus and Jambres? Paul references the, them and their opposition in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. That, that means their names are so significant as to have been remembered down through thousands of years. But as significant as these guys are, they are, at the moment, boiled over. The, the point is, friends, let me bring this to a head. Oh, that's the, the point is that <laughs> I need you to understand. Sorry. No, this is no joke. You need to understand this. God will not be mocked. A man reap what it, reaps what he sows. And I think that this point is made in a powerful, if subtle way in the passage. Follow this with me. Where did the boils come from? Well, from the soot that Moses and Aaron threw in the air. Where did the soot come from? Kilns. What kilns? Well, the mo most likely, the kilns that the Egyptians forced the Israelites to bake bricks in. You see, the Lord has a an uncanny way of, of turning things around. He, he often uses the very tools that the enemies devise for the oppression of God's people. He, he often uses that as a means of their own destruction. God's enemies fall into traps that they have set. As, sh as Shakespeare would put it, they get hoisted by their own petard. Brothers and sisters, we serve a God undefeated, a God who defeats all of his enemies. And I hope that you're comforted by that fact this morning. I hope that you who are grieving and mourning and fearful of, of various schemes, whether we're talking about enemies, foreign and domestic, our brothers are imprisoned, property confiscated, Clo closer to home, we're, we're dealing with drag queen story hours. They're, they're transing our kids. They're, they're gunning for our children. Our, our governor is intent on making our state a safe haven for those who are seeking to murder their unborn children. She wants to make this a place where violent criminals aren't imprisoned. And we hear about these things on the news, even the local news, they, they come very close to home. And, and we fret and we toil and we wonder, what, what's going to happen? How much worse can we get? As a nation, we're defying God to his face. Have any of you been watching the events of the last couple of days surrounding the 
coronation of his majesty king charles iii probably not right you guys stopped paying attention to that kind of thing in 1776 But I know that there are some Christians who watch the coronation of a British monarch wishing that they could have a Christian nation like that someday when America grows up. A lot of of Christians kind of fantasize to returning to how we imagine America was when it was a baby. And I know this because I, I read my social media feed. I read it yesterday. And there's self-proclaimed Christian nationalists on there that are just drooling at the idea that there's a head of state who swears to uphold the word of God and abide by the law of God. And and he does this as hymns and high praises are sung. Listen, I can only think of one thing worse than a country of ours who by our position and our passions and our policies are basically constantly giving the middle finger to God. There's only one thing worse than that, and that is a country who does that with their left hand while their right hand is on the Bible swearing an oath. Christian nation? Let me me give you the proper British term for such a concept. Poppycock. God will not be mocked. He is a God defeating. He is undefeated. And take comfort in that, brothers and sisters. Take comfort, for example, in Psalm 2, when when we read of the nations that are shaking their fists at God and plotting and scheming against him and against his anointed. What is God's reaction? He laughs. It's hilarious. He who sits at the heaven in the heavens laughs. He holds them in derision. And then he speaks and he rises in his anger. He, his, his anointed one rises up and when he appears, he breaks them with a rod of iron. He, he dashes them to, to pieces like a potter's vessel. And who shall stand when Christ appears? I'll tell you who will stand when Christ appears, and that is his people, his treasured possession, a holy nation that he has made, made up of individuals that he has saved by his blood and has ransomed and redeemed. The church, the church of Jesus Christ will stand by his grace on that day. Brothers and sisters, behold your God is all I can say to you. He is a God demanding. He is a God discriminating. And he is a God, take comfort in this, defeating all of his enemies. He is undefeated. And so let us go from this place worshiping him, taking great comfort in him, and let us go forth proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Amen? Amen.